Hi, welcome to Around Town, where we seek to discover insights into places, events, topics, and issues that you want to know about in our great city. I'm your host, Nick Berkfeld, with producer Chuck Luck. Today, we'll be talking with author and lawyer Chuck Lanehart. Chuck, thanks so much for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. How did you get interested in writing about West Texas history? Well, I've always been a writer and I've always been interested in history. But about 1987, my sister-in-law gave me an old faded photograph from the Southwest Collection. It was a picture of these old guys in cowboy hats cowboy boots, and one of them was wearing an eye patch, and they were standing in front of an old building. It turned out to be a jail. On the back of the photograph said, the trial officials and jurors, State versus William E. Taylor, 1913, Lubbock's first murder trial. And I said, what the heck is all that about? It? That's all it said. And so I got down in the basement of the courthouse, and I found out about that murder trial, and I wrote about it. That got me started. In your book, Tragedy and Triumphs on the Texas Plains, Curious Historic Chronicles from Murders to Movies, you have a lot of great stories. I want to have the opportunity to share a couple of these. If we could start by a conversation on James William Jarrett. His name does not appear on any public place, street, or anything in Lubbock, and yet he is one of the heroes of our community in this part of the country. He was a lawyer from Central Texas, and he came to Lubbock, found a strip of land in Hockley, Terry, and Cochran counties that was eligible under the Four Sections Act of 1895 for settlement. Like Stephen F. Austin, he brought 24 families, including his own, from Central Texas to homestead this land, which was very inexpensive. And as long as you homesteaded it under the laws of that period of time, the state of Texas would deed you the four sections of land. That land was already being used by the big ranching conglomerates and corporations that were using that land for free. Some of it was leased. They didn't like it. They filed lawsuits against all these homesteaders. Jarrett, being a lawyer, defended all of those claims successfully. This is about 1902. As soon as that was done, Jarrett winds up dead. He had been gunned down in Hockley County, just west of Lubbock County, on his way to his homestead. Six or eight years later, an infamous gunman called Deacon Jim Miller was captured by the authorities, and he confessed to, among other crimes, the murder of Jim Miller. He was an assassin, a paid assassin. He would not name his employer. The case went cold for a 100 years, and that's kind of where I got interested in the case started searching all over for evidence of this murder and who might have ordered Jim Jarrett killed. Well, my wife is a retired judge. She knows a lot about property law. I accumulated a lot of old property deeds and whatnot out of Terry County, and she deciphered those records and found that the person who paid Deacon Jim Miller to kill Jarrett was a fellow named Pap Brownfield, one of the big ranchers, and he operated out of Terry County. If you look carefully at those deed records and you know what you're looking for, you'll see sort of a money laundering situation where Deacon Jim Miller got paid to kill the lawyer, Jarrett. So we solved that 100-year-old murder case. The town of Brownfield, named after Pat Brownfield. What was the feeling for you for essentially solving the first homicide in Lubbock's history? 
I felt proud. As a matter of fact, a buddy of mine named Bill Neal took all of my research and turned it into a book. It's called Death on the Lonely Estacado, published about 10 years ago. Very good book. It tells all of the details of the Jarrett story. And why do you feel as though Jarrett is somebody that's been lost to time so far? That's a good question. There was never any meaningful litigation in the case. There were a few cowboys who were arrested and actually indicted for the crime, but they were cleared. There's no trial. There just was not much written about it at the time because it was an unsolved mystery. In your research of this, what are some things about James Jarrett that you wish people did know? For one thing, he was married to Molly Jarrett. Molly, after Jim's death, married a fellow named Abernathy. She and Abernathy became big-time developers in Lubbock, helped bring the railroad to Lubbock. She became Lubbock's very first businesswoman, credited with opening the first J.C. Penney's building here. She operated the family homestead and raised a bunch of Hereford cattle, and she was very, very successful. I want to ask you about the deacon, Jim Miller, a side character, the assassin, but also somebody with a story in his own right and one that has numerous brushes with the law, but seemingly the ability to elude justice. By his own count, Deacon Jim Miller killed 52 men all over the state of Texas, New Mexico, and Oklahoma. Most of them were contract killings. He was a hired gun, and he was caught on several of these occasions and actually went to trial on several occasions. In each case, he had good lawyers. He had people who were willing to lie for him for alibi purposes and self-defense purposes, and he kept getting acquitted. Toward the end there, he was arrested in Oklahoma for some murder that he had committed, and he confessed to the Jarrett killing. He was released, and he went out and killed a former U.S. Marshal, contract killing, was caught again. The folks of Ada, Oklahoma, where he was caught, said, hey, this guy seems to get away with murder wherever he goes. We ain't going to let him get away with murder in Ada. And they strung him up. They lynched him, and he's dead. When you're looking at this history, what kinds of characters, what kinds of stories speak to you in terms of you wanting to sink your teeth into them, spend time doing more research, the due diligence that you did on the James Jarrett story, for example? Good characters make good stories. One of the articles in my book, which we're probably not going to have time to talk about, is called The Saga of Slippery Sam Cates in uh, Crosbyton. He was quite a character, and characters like that just make the story. And there are lots and lots of characters who come from this part of the country. When you think about these stories, what's your first approach to them? Do you go right to courthouses? How do you start your process for finding this information? The source of all human knowledge is Wikipedia. I'm not kidding you. I might pick something up from uh, Facebook. I'll look it up on Wikipedia. I don't believe what they write there, but they've got a nice little reference section at the bottom that tells where all of their stuff comes from the books, the magazines, and all that. And that's kind of where I get started. And then nowadays with the computers, I don't have to go to very many places to find information. Texas Tech Southwest Collection, I go there all the time. Making sure that these stories are well-documented, how do we benefit from hearing these stories, from knowing about these stories? Someone once said, if you don't learn from history, then you're doomed to relive it in the future. All of these stories are relevant to things that happen today. Once a story gets old and is told over and over and over, it gets more and more colorful, but there's still lots of murders, and murders are interesting. 
lot of these cases are about murders. A lot of these cases are about entertainment. We love to be entertained, and we might have time to, to talk about one of those entertainment stories. But yeah. One element of these stories for you involves the legal aspects of them. And I can't help but think about how law and its application evolves over time. How do you think about early law here in the frontier, early history of Lubbock? How do you compare and contrast that to, say, your own law practice today? Times have changed. It's like night and day, the way trials were handled way back when. I'll give you an example. When a case was tried at the courthouse and the jury was chosen, the uh, Lubbock Avalanche Journal would print the names, not only of the witnesses, not only of the trial participants, but the jurors. Not only their names, their addresses, their ages, their occupations. <laughs> I mean, that's just one little difference, but times have changed, yeah. And we'll be right back with Chuck to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. We're speaking with Chuck Lanehart, a lawyer and chronicler of West Texas history. Another story in the book, the headline being The Dirty Movie Wars, Last Tango in Lubbock. This movie, The Last Tango, caused a bit of a stir here in the city of Lubbock. What was the movie about and what happened? Last Tango in Paris was a movie starring Marlon Brando, who had just become the number one actor for portraying the Godfather. It's a story about an older fellow who winds up in Paris. He's widowed. He has an anonymous affair with a younger lady. It's about their relationship, essentially, quite steamy sexual nature of the relationship. And that's basically what it was about. And it played in first-run movie theaters. It played here at the Fox Theater, which at the time was a first-run legitimate movie theater. When it ran at the Fox Theater, it caused some concern within the community, specifically Lubbock's criminal district attorney at the time, Alton Griffin. Alton was pretty regularly, during this period of time, raiding the various movies around town and confiscating them and charging the managers with misdemeanor crimes of obscenity. He busted Debbie Does Dallas and Behind the Green Door and Deep Throat and so forth, and then he wound up busting Last Tango in Paris, playing at the Fox Theater. And it was the very first jury trial in the United States involving Last Tango in Paris. And the reason I really got interested in this story is because I was working at the time for the University Daily, the newspaper at Texas Tech. And I was assigned to cover this trial, mainly because there was a lot of local interest and interests around the country in a new Supreme Court decision which tried to define what obscenity is for legal purposes. And so I got to go to the trial. It was just fascinating to me to sit through an entire trial I never had before. It was in Judge Denzel Beaver's court, County Court Law Number 2. It involved some really high-profile lawyers on both sides. All of Alton's evidence was simply just the movie. He offered the movie as evidence in the case. That was it. Denzel looks at the film canisters and said, well, what am I going to do now? Bangs his gavel and he said, we're going to recess. We're going to reopen this trial at the Fox Theater. Everybody in the courtroom, all of the spectators, all of the court officials, judge, defendant, everyone, reconvenes at the Fox Theater, and we all got to watch Last Tango in Paris. 
Then we go back to the courthouse and we continue the trial. And the defense, headed by Dan Hurley and Mike Worley, Dan, he's a well-known criminal defense lawyer here in town, good buddy of mine. They began a parade of local, well-known citizens who each got up on the stand and testified under oath that the film did not appeal to their prurient interests and contained redeeming social value, which were the test words that the United Supreme Court had written about. It didn't take long for the jury to find the manager of the Fox not guilty. You have a very colorful description of the final arguments in the book, and I'm curious if you could share a little bit of that. So Alton told the jury, said, you know, we can't have movies like this because if we have movies like this, it's going to mean anybody who watches the movie will be encouraged to go home and, and have this type of really bad sex. So Dan Hurley got up and in rebuttal and he said, Alton's right, because I remember when I was younger and I watched Cinderella, I immediately went home and put on my tutu and danced all around the house. I got a laugh. This case for both criminal defense attorneys in Lubbock, as well as some prominent district attorneys, would have some repercussions, as well as around obscenity in general. I'm thinking about John Monford as well. Can you talk some about that? Two things kind of happened to make John the next district attorney. Number one, he was the defense lawyer on a lot of these obscenity cases, and he got well-known because he had some success defending some of these obscenity cases. And the second thing that happened that helped him get into office was a study uh, that was published by the Lubbock Avalanche Journal about the property room at, at the police station. It was after the Tango case, and I don't remember if there were other cases pending or what, but they looked at the property log at the police station. They found out that a lot of the police captains and other investigators, detectives that were involved in these obscenity cases, and some of the assistant DAs who may or may not have been involved in these cases, were checking out these movies regularly for, I don't know, a couple of days and then checking them back in. And so I think Montford used that information and other information and ran against Alton and he was elected and the rest is history as far as John Montford is concerned. That was his first political office. <laughs> judge Beavers, the judge overseeing this case, seems like something of a colorful character, having the court reconvene inside of the movie theater to see the movie. What are some impressions that you had as you were observing this case unfold? Turns out that he became a close family friend. I married the daughter of a former Lubbock County judge, Bill Davis, and Bill Davis and Denzel Beavers were law partners. So after I married Paula, I got to know Denzel really, really well, and he was a character. I mean, Denzel was a character. Great sense of humor, loved to tell story after story after story, and I would have lunch with Denzel from time to time and just listen to his stories. Another story that you capture in this book is about an individual by the name of Leonard Franklin Sly. He was a fellow born in Cincinnati, Ohio, in about 1911. He was musical, came from a musical family, and decided that he wanted to get into show business. And he started appearing on radio shows and on stage and so forth. Wound up in California to try to improve his popularity as a performer. He could sing, he could play the guitar. In California, he put together a band. The band was called the O-Bar-O Cowboy. They decided they would embark on a tour of the Southwest from California east. And they wound up in Lubbock. 
1933. They were starving to death. Leonard Sly says, I was so poor I could not even pay attention. They ate jackrabbits that they would shoot from the highway to survive. And they wind up in Lubbock. They stay for a good month or six weeks. They got a gig on the local radio station, and then they would get a few gigs to play at the local Rotary Club or the Lions Club or whatever. And they kind of were doing okay, but they had a secret. They were still hungry. And what they did was they would get on the radio and they would start talking about all of these non-existent fans that they had that had left nice cakes and pies and casseroles for them to eat. And they wanted to thank Ms. Jones and Ms. Smith for all of the nice food that they brought. Sure enough, people who heard this said, I want to bring something to these guys. And real people started bringing them food. And one of the girls who brought food to the station wound up marrying one of the Obaro cowboys, as it turned out. They performed at KFYO all over the place. They just couldn't make a go of it. After their last gig in Lubbock, the band broke up. Leonard wound up moving back to California, and he hooked up with one of his former bandmates named Tim Spencer. They formed a band called the Sons of the Pioneers about a year later. When he joined the Sons of the Pioneers, he decided to change his name to Roy Rogers. And Roy Rogers became the hero of everyone of my generation as a kid. He was a singing cowboy, movie star, TV star. He was everywhere. Everybody seemed to love Roy Rogers. And we'll be right back with Chuck to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back. To Around Town. Our guest today is author and lawyer Chuck Lanehart. There was a story about a Lubbock legend in your book that I was not familiar with, but now really want to know more. Homer Maxey, the lawsuit that he got involved in that ultimately spent a very long amount of his life trying to contest. Well, Homer Maxey was a local boy who made good. He was son of a contractor. Started out in the building business before World War II. After he came back from World War II, Lubbock had become one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing city in the United States, jumping from 20,000 to almost 150,000 residents between 1930 and 1970. He saw the need for a lot of commercial and residential building, and he started building homes and he started building buildings for businesses. He got rich. He became a millionaire, probably a billionaire by today's standards. It was a real tragedy that he probably didn't have better legal and financial advice. But what happened was he had a law firm from Lubbock, was advising him on his personal affairs and his business affairs. And the law firm also represented Citizens National Bank. That became his bank at the advice of his law firm. Well, the bank decided that his investments were risky. One day, they had a meeting at the bank represented by Homer's law firm. The bank foreclosed on all of his property, including his home, which he had mortgaged 
to the bank toward his business debts. Not only did they foreclose on all of this property, members of the bank and the law firm purchased these assets for like $750. Homer was homeless, broke, and he had two little girls. He was mad at the bank and at his lawyers. He brought a civil lawsuit against all of these folks, about 40 different people. The lawsuit went on and on and on. The first trial was in 1969. It was the longest civil trial in Lubbock's history. It lasted three months. And he won. He won a $2.5 million verdict against the bank. The lawyers appealed the case to the Texas Supreme Court. Texas Supreme Court reversed the case and remanded it for a new trial. So they go back to trial again. I don't remember how long the second trial lasted, but he won again, $7.5 million. Again, the case is appealed. And again, state Supreme Court reversed it in favor of the bank and remanded for a new trial. The case goes to trial again in 1980. Everyone was tired of all of this litigation. Homer finally settled for a $2 million settlement from the bank. He got paid. He lived out the last 10 years of his life in okay shape. But there's no question that if that had happened under today's banking regulations and legal ethics, a lot of these folks probably would have gone to jail and have their law licenses revoked. This case, especially because it was so long going, was something of a talk of the town. How do you perceive the impact that this had on Maxi? Citizens Bank at the time, what were some of the fallout from all this? There were 40 prominent citizens that had been sued by Homer Maxey, and then you had the Homer Maxey camp on the other side. And he was well-known, too, had a lot of friends. The fallout was, long story short, Citizens Bank failed. I think they maybe they sold to a bigger bank or something like that. They were no longer in Lubbock. But meanwhile, they had built this big skyscraper by Lubbock standards right smack downtown Lubbock called Citizens Tower. That building eventually was abandoned and started falling apart. The city of Lubbock was owed a lot of taxes on the building from the owner at that time. City of Lubbock decided to settle those taxes by taking over the building. They took over Citizens Tower, and it's now our city hall. Maxi was involved in a number of very large projects in the city of Lubbock, one of them being the expansion and renovation of the Pioneer Hotel, when you think about what-ifs, if Maxi had been able to have retained his wealth throughout that time, what kinds of things do you think he would have been involved in? Probably the arts. <laughs> People don't know this, but one of our most famous artists ever to come out of Lubbock was Glenna Goodacre, and that was Homer's daughter. She was quite involved in the arts, as was his wife. I think he would have been involved in a lot of civic affairs, really enjoyed the culture of Lubbock, improved on the culture of Lubbock. I don't know. I didn't know Homer, but there's a really good book, by the way, that my story was based on called Broke Not Broken, Homer Maxey's Texas Bank War. This was written by a good friend of mine named Broadus Spivey, who was a really well-respected lawyer in Austin, Texas, who started his career here in Lubbock. When you look back on Lubbock history, and you think of the colorful characters that are a part of it, who are some people next that you want to highlight or topics that you want to think about? Right now, I'm working on a what I hope will be a book about 
Stubb Stubblefield, C.B. Stubblefield. He was the owner and proprietor of uh, Stubbs Barbecue on East Broadway. He was the cultural catalyst of Lubbock back in the uh, mid to late 70s and 80s, who brought together some unknown musicians who loved his food and offered them a place to play their music. They all became famous. People like Joe Ely and Jimmy Dale Gilmore and Terry Allen and the Maines Brothers and others. And long story short, Stubb became known for his barbecue joint in Austin. He moved to Austin and then started selling the sauce and the sauce became very popular. Then he died. And then the sauce got sold to McCormick Foods for $100 million. So it's really a poor boy makes good story all the way through. And that's what I'm working on right now. When you chronicle this region's history, what are some parts of it that you think more citizens should know about? What are the parts that you really want to celebrate? I've written several books about the history of the Plains, not necessarily just Lubbock. The history of the Plains of Texas, talking primarily South Plains and the Panhandle, that's the last frontier. This area is what people think of when they think about cowboys and Indians. It happened right here right here, 150 years ago. There's some just wonderful, wonderful history about this part of the country and how we evolved from Clovis Man at the Lubbock Lake site to Texas Tech and the huge medical complex that we have here and all the prosperity that we have in this community. For individuals that also have an interest in learning more about the history of the region, what are some things that they can look to or look for? The Southwest Collection, for example. If you're not familiar with the Southwest Collection, it is the archives at Texas Tech University. They have a reading room. They have tons of material that you can access and read about that you can't read in regular books. It's just stuff that if you're really interested, you can find old documents and photographs and videos and music, all kinds of things that you can't access anywhere else. For individuals that want to purchase this book, where can they go to find it? Google my name or Google Tragedy and Triumph on the Texas Plains. It'll pop up under Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Chuck, that's all the time that we have today. Thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to Around Town. I'm your host, Nick Berkfeld. This show was produced by Chuck Luck. Our guest today was author and lawyer Chuck Lanehart. Join us next Friday morning at 9 a.m. on 89.1. For more information on Around Town or to listen to previous episodes, visit ttupublicmedia.org.